We are close to the tipping point where global warming becomes irresistible. Trump's action could push the Earth over the brink. To become like Venus, with a temperature of 250 degrees, and raining sulfuric acid. What more does the environment have to do to become an election issue? Despite Donald Trump saying he'd take the US out of the Paris Climate Agreement a few weeks before polls opened, and despite the ongoing discussions about the environmental consequences of Brexit, we've just had yet another campaign where the environment was barely mentioned by politicians. At its peak, it burned 12 million tonnes of coal every year. Today, it burned none at all. It's not all bad news, though. Most of the world is still signed up to an agreement to limit global warming to two degrees, and the UK had its first day without coal-generated energy in April. And today it seemed that for once the future arrived ahead of schedule. Even though it's all kicking off environmentally and our political debate won't give it a word in edgeways, are environmental warriors still winning against the odds? My name's Aisha Thomas-Smith, and this week on the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're tackling the environment, the election, and whether there's any natural disaster so bad that even Jake Gyllenhaal couldn't save us. Stay with us. United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate My administration is putting an end to the war on coal. and have clean coal. So to talk all things environmental today, we've got Dave Powell, who leads on the New Economic Foundation's environmental work. Dave, favourite environmental disaster movie, please. Ah, oh, it's really sad. <laughs> it's a really sad one. It's a film called Silent Running from, I think, like the oh, early God's 70s. Sake, which, no, if you haven't seen this, it's like, it's basically, it's, it's colossally optimistic about the fact that the robots will save the forests even though the humans are going to destroy all the forests. And it's really, really sad and beautiful, but mostly sad. A space convoy on a strange voyage, carrying a rare cargo. The forests, the plants, the growing things doomed to extinction on Earth. Is this a real movie? Did you just make it up? It's a real thing. It's did you, did you film it in your back garden? No. Okay, all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check up on that. We've also got Fernanda Balata, who leads Neff's work on coastal economies. Fernanda, I hear you're a Jaws fan. Actually, I'm not. <laughs> I've been grossly misinformed. <laughs> I watched it when I was little, but I, it always annoyed me that movies would, you know, pick animals to be like bad guys. Mm. So actually, Jaws, yeah. I mean, I think it plays a role on, you know, the killing of loads of sharks out there. Um, but bats was the one that always annoyed me the most. Bats being like bad creatures because they're adorable. Is there a movie where bats are... Batman? I think so. Are they the kind of hero of Batman? I mean, I'm sure bats are demonised every day. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I really hear that. And finally, we welcome back Andrew Pendleton, NEF's Principal Director of Policy and Advocacy. Andrew, movies. Let's talk movies. Wally, the the, the Pixar <laughs> well the Pixar children's film, which is I mean it's notionally a children's film. It's actually um, it's one of those brilliant animations that kind of it works for all ages really. But um, and it's a love affair between two robots, mm. also about robots, also yeah. about yeah. robots. So it's obviously a robotic thing. The only way we can deal with the planetary emergency is obviously robotic 
response. Um, but it's hopeful because a, a single green shoot survives and from that they can, you know, the people return to Earth, they've had to go off into space because it's unlivable on and they can return to Earth and rebuild civilization. But they're all, they're all kind of hopeful, right? Though there's no disaster movie where, like, everything's decimated at the end. There's always, like, a sexy man and woman who, like, are left looking into the horizon, like Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I'm using my body heat to warm you. Have or the US government normally or says the US government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Independence Day. I know that's not a disaster movie, it's an alien movie. Anyway, we're going off track. But still, there's always someone left at the end to repopulate the Earth in a sexy way. Welcome to Earth. Anyway, thanks, guys. <laughs> So, with three environmental experts on today, we thought we'd do our headline section a little bit differently. So, we're often accused of being a bit doom and gloom on the Weekly Economics podcast. Uh, so, we want each of you to tell us about a really positive environmental story that we might have missed in the news recently. So, for our positive headline special, I'm calling this bit, Looking Back. I'm not going to go do that over my shoulder bit, because it's a bit <laughs> out of my range, but that was the song. Did you get that? Dave, you look confused. I am confused. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listen to the, I'm just gonna, I'm the whole thing. No, I'm, look, I'm just going to, I'm rolling with this. Okay, At some point this makes sense. Right, tell me something good. Something good? Yes. Uh, well, it depends how you define good, really. Mm. Uh, it's good for, like, the planet and people and stuff. It's not particularly good for massive fracking would-be company Quadrilla, whose profits have gone down the toilet. Because basically what keeps happening is up in Lancashire and all around the UK, uh, frackers want to frack, uh, but there are people going, you can't frack here, frack off, basically. Nice. Um, and what that's doing is it's making companies that have a business model all based around wanting to frack, like Quadrilla, lose loads of money. And there was news a few weeks ago that yet again, another permission to appeal for anti-fracking campaigners in Lancashire um, has hit, according to The Telegraph, hit the quad hit quadrilla's bottom line quite hard and if there's something i'm sure we can all agree on it's that their bottom line should be hit oh nice that was positive i feel good i feel good already fernando <laughs> what what ray of sunshine have you got for us okay mine is a bit peculiar microbeads have you heard of them yeah in face yeah. washes and stuff yeah exactly so you're well informed mm. so they're being banned now um so canada is the latest country to do it the u.s did it as well some states in the US, I think that's more accurate, um, have been doing it. And it's not just the selling of uh, products that have microbeads, but also the production will be banned as well. And microbeads, just quickly for whoever doesn't know, mm. it's little tiny pieces of plastic that go into products like, you know, things that we put on our faces and wash ourselves with. Um, but they all go to the ocean and it's causing a massive problem for you know, the creatures that live in the ocean and ultimately could end up in our food chain, etc. Um, so I think that's good news just because uh, for me, uh, it really frustrates me that we have so much knowledge and we know so much about the things that we shouldn't be doing and yet we keep doing them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's great when you get like, you know, a wide acknowledgement by a whole country um, to actually stop doing, uh, start doing the right thing. Sorry. So... Another great one. So no more fracking, no more beads. Andrew, what else are we banning? Well, we've had a lot of sunshine of okay, late. Good, yeah. And as a result of that, on some days, a quarter of the UK's electricity needs has been met by solar. 
Oh. And that's fantastic. So it's it's an even better figure. It's it's over. It's been over half on some days for renewables as a whole, and we've had windy, sunny days as well. But um, you know, a few years ago, lots of people were arguing that solar had no place in the UK and that we shouldn't be subsidising it and we shouldn't have government funds going into it and we shouldn't be prioritising it. And I think they've all been wrong, to be honest. And it's a fantastic success story. And you know, the the, the past few years have been littered with kind of depressing stories about how renewables are getting kind of kicked but knocked back by various changes in government policy but actually in spite of all of that we've been installing loads and loads of them and they're becoming a massive success story and we just need to keep going it's a literally sunny story oh, lovely and on such a sunny day thanks guys that's a really great place to start i have a feeling it might go a bit downhill but we'll see we'll see we'll pick it back up and be fine so we'll have a we'll have more of looking back next week maybe or the week after but it'll be called something else Anyway. Why do you keep doing that? It's a thing, it's a thing that we do. We, oh, right. We do a reflection. Okay. I do a song that has like looking like looking back or remembering or something in the headlight. People love it. Fine. Literally, they love it, Dave. Anyway. Across the Western United States, some 40 million people impacted by not only extreme heat, but historic heat across in some Phoenix of these areas. In Phoenix this week, it's not just hot, it's baking. A heat wave isn't really a good way to describe it. It's more like a heat attack. The hottest temperatures ever observed. In fact... The hottest ever seen in Las Vegas was 47. Big question of this week, can we save the planet despite Trump? They say it's the hope that kills you. Just over a year after most of the world's countries signed the Paris Agreement on climate change, Donald Trump declared that the US is set to pull out. It happened in the middle of the UK's general election campaign and environmentalists hoped it would kick off a national debate about our commitment to protect the planet. But other issues were at the forefront once again. Some people were worried that a hard Brexit would mean our environmental regulations would be scrapped. They might now hope that a hung parliament means that they're easier to protect. So should we be a glass half empty or glass half full? Despite the hurdles, are we making progress on saving the planet? Are there reasons to be hopeful? First of all, even if it wasn't talked about during the election campaign, it's all kicking off everywhere on the environment over the last few months. Dave, what's been going on? Crikey. Well, what hasn't been going on? Where to start? Let's start with uh, Mr. Trump over in America. He's a very naughty boy. Mm -hmm. And he had promised when he was pledging that he wanted to be uh, president that he would take uh, do all sorts of things, but primarily he would take the USA out of the Paris Agreement on climate change, which is a thing signed up to a year and a half ago by all but two of the world's countries saying we will limit global temperature rises to two or lower degrees. And that's the thing we all agree on. And it doesn't have to be bad. It could be good. And everyone was very happy about it. Um, but he said, no, not doing that. And uh, he took a long time to think about it. It was a huge tussle inside the American, uh, inside the White House, uh, where some parts of his cabinet, including bizarrely ex-oil chief uh, Rex Tillerson, was saying, no, no, you should stay in this thing. Another part of it was telling him to get out. Anyway, he pulled out. Mm. Um, and everyone went uh, kind of spare about it. But what was brilliant was that uh, most people, all the leaders around the world and mayors of cities in America and all of that sort of thing, um, instantly turned around and said, no, um, actually, we're going to carry on mm. doing this. You know, so China and Germany and the mayor of Pittsburgh stood up and said, no, actually, I think it's in Pittsburgh's interest to carry on doing this. So it's been kind of really heartening in a way that he, uh, Trump has really sold himself as a friend to coal and, you know, trying to look after coal jobs and going back to an age that, you know, as Andrew was saying, the age is very quickly no longer kind of existing. And most people in any sort of position to influence anywhere around the world have gone, you got it wrong. 
got it wrong. So that's that's a thing that's been going on. And and um, actually, sort of corollary of that in a way, um, the, the, new, the new president of France, President Macron, French accent there. I hope you noticed. Nice, that's good. Um, thanks. It was um, he's he's offered scientists from the US money to go and set up in France and carry on with their work, which is kind of, part, I mean, of partly a bit of a stunt, I guess, mm. but but also hugely hopeful that we, we have a, a new major leader in the EU who's going to really champion this agenda, which I think is which I think is fantastic. And the pit, the Pittsburgh bit is really critical because that's part of the Rust Belt in in the US. So that's where a lot of workers feel like they've lost out substantially, partly as a, as a, just as a result of kind of restructuring and change in industries globally, but partly because of, you know, some of those industries just cannot exist in the future if we're to tackle climate change. But that's not a, you know, that's not nothing to do with climate change or climate policy. That's a failure of governments to work out how to bring workers from one industry to another or to change skill sets so that people have got a chance in 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 the economy as it changes um so but that's a, that was a brilliant intervention by the mayor of pittsburgh really significant yeah and so all that's been going on over around the world but in the uk it's there's been all sorts of things happening what's been going on huge amounts of focus on air pollution um in the run-up to the election where you know we're here in london where everything all the air is stinky but all over the uk stinky air is everywhere and there's just been more and more and more pressure on it uh, the mayor of london sadiq khan has made it a thing that he wants to do something about uh, the government's been repeatedly told by uh, horrible european politicians that it has to go and clean up the air. Um, so there's been a huge focus on that and a lot of stuff uh, that feels quite closer to home. A lot of debate about things like uh, coffee cups and whether or not we should be putting a charge on them um, and debates I suppose in a spirit of kind of Brexit about like, well, what sort of country do we want to be anyway? Do we want to be a country with horrible stinky air and where we put plastic into the sea or what? So there's been quite a lot going on and Brexit, you know, which um, despite everything uh, 70% of the UK's environmental laws come from Europe. So we're going to have to work out what we do about farming and fisheries and what we do about air pollution if we haven't got the European courts to enforce it and all of our climate policy that is affected by that. So there's loads and loads of stuff that's been going on. So, so if all that's happening, why was the environment so absent from our election debate once again? What do you think, Andrew? Well, there's two parts of the answer to that question from my point of view. I mean, the first, the first thing to say is anybody who predicted what was going to be a part of the election campaign before it pretty much got it wrong. So somewhere in another room in an office somewhere else in London or another city in the UK, they're recording a podcast right now about Brexit. And they're saying, well, so why wasn't Brexit the part of the election debate that we it's thought it was good. going to be? Of course, it's good. not as good, no. And don't sign up to it. Just keep with this one. <laughs> um, but um, so that's, that's one part of it. The election debate was very dynamic and unpredictable. But the other part of it is that the this is the problem that the environment always suffers from. It's a low saliency issue. So um, and this is kind of ongoing as well as in key political moments like elections. So if you look at the polling that companies like YouGov do, where they ask people what they think are the kind of most important issues, generally just sort of reflect back what they're hearing from media and political figures and others. Um, and typically, you know, the environment, which will include climate change, will be a sort of 10% figure within those answers. If you're lucky. If you're lucky, exactly. Where, where that hasn't been the case, and this gives us a clue to why 
you know, to how you get the environment to be a bigger issue in the in sort of public discourse is when things like there have been the big floods here. So that's when there's been particular spikes in public attention, of course, and not that we, we would wish for a second for that to happen just in order for public interest to spike. But what that says is that the environment has to be located very close to what people care most about. So air pollution is a really key part of that because people are becoming quite angry, I think, about the state of the air um, and how that affects people's health, particularly children's health. So with all that in mind, and as you said earlier, Dave, with what's happening in the US, with people choosing not to follow Trump's uh, orders, and does it matter if the politicians here aren't paying attention? The the UK had its first day without coal-generated energy in April, and that was because renewables are cheaper rather than anything that politicians have done. What do you think, Fernanda? I think that's not completely true. Yeah, renewables are cheaper, and that's that's part of, of the reason. But the, it, it, has, it has had something to do with things that politicians have done in the past. Some of them they're not doing anymore, actually. So maybe they should be doing again. So, for example, um, supporting community energy um, generation, so community renewable energy projects. The UK government used to have a subsidy to support community-led renewable energy generation until recently. And community energy grew quite a lot in the past few years um, in the UK, which shows the appetite for people out there to actually, you know, lead on these projects and set up renewable energy projects, but they stopped doing it. So I think my message is that politicians do have a role to play and it's important that they pay attention. It's important they listen to people and what they what they want. And it's very clear to me what they want in this in, in relation to renewable energy um, in this country for sure. In Germany, for many years, they've they've had a much better awareness, I think, of how policy and politics in this area works together. So they they you know they prioritise policies that would help communities, but different community structure as well. So very much more powerful states and and a, a more organised village structure often. But communities like villages in Germany, they prioritise policy which allow them specifically allow them to install their own renewables so that they can benefit not just from the energy but also financially. And that and that's led to a massive slew of support, much much stronger support from the bottom up for renewable energy in Germany than you see here. And that's because of policy. But let's get something. Right, though. I mean, there's a big difference between the things that are in, you know, uh, when they're giving speeches on question time and when they're doing hustings and the stuff that politicians, when they're knocking on your door, are telling you about. It's a big difference between that and the things that are in the manifestos. And pretty much, I reckon this was the greenest set of manifestos, quietly, that we've ever seen in this country. All of the parties had something in there that was, you know, a, a pretty good green thing. Need to go into the details of it. Um, and you know, look, all of the well, what has led to the renewable energy revolution that we've got, it was things like the Paris Agreement, which gave a massive signal to markets, this is a way to go. Politicians did that. It was things like the UK Climate Change Act, which uh, we led the world in best part of 10 years ago. Politicians made that happen. It was the feed-in tariffs that politicians supported. Um, it's all of the things around it, for good and for ill. You know, it's a, the reason why fracking is still, you know, still being chipped away at is because politicians, the government, want to do it. So there is a big. I mean, Andrew's absolutely right that the, the environment is a kind of low salience thing. It's not a thing that people care about on the doorstep. But actually, there is a huge amount of great stuff that politicians are making happen, and they still, and, and a huge amount of bad stuff they're still keeping happening, like trying to get fracking going and drilling oil and gas out of the sea. So they matter hugely. 
And it matters hugely because we're trying to tip an economy, trying to tip something much faster than the market wants to do by itself. We're trying to, we've got a century's worth of oil and gas fossil fuel infrastructure that doesn't easily want to become renewable. We've got a century's worth of destructive mining and natural uh, pillaging of the natural world that doesn't easily want to stop. And the people who set the rules, which is ultimately politicians, have to change that as fast as they possibly can. So it does matter hugely. Um, so I want to push politicians a little bit further, actually, because we were talking about, you know, what people prioritize when they asked, um, you know, what the priorities are and the environment's quite low. But actually, we talked about air pollution and health. I don't know if we know what the ranking is for health in people's priority list. No, high, high, certainly higher high, than the environment. Quite high up. <laughs> well, it depends. NHS yeah. is always a very high up thing. Yeah. So, so I would argue that, you know, again, you know, in pushing politicians that extra bit hard in terms of what they can do and what role they can play, um, is that if health is a priority, well, we know we have enough knowledge about how a healthy environment actually is directly related to our own health. Um, and air pollution is a perfect example of that. So the environment is in everything. If you ask someone to rank the environment with other things, it's already an unfair question because if you ask if people care about health, if they care about their health, they care about the environment. If they care about, I don't know, having a job, having a living, I mean, that's also dependent on the environment. So again, going back to what politicians should be doing is listening to what people care about. And it's, I think, their job as people who are kind of you know, managing our society um, to a certain extent and managing the country to make those links and make the environment a higher priority. So the thing I did want to say, in addition to all that, which is obviously right, is that something that worries me a bit is I think we still see, all of us, the environment as like the job of a department over in a corner or the job of a certain person or a certain, like, it's just a thing you do on the side. So we'll do climate policy over here somewhere. Uh, and meanwhile, we'll get on carving out trade deals with people that don't care about the environment or we'll build houses that leak energy or we won't, you know, look after uh, nature policy and all the stuff we're doing on development and all of that sort of thing. And Actually, what we, if we are serious about doing this, if we're serious about like 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees, and we're serious about giving people, you know, the ability to really take control over their lives and the way that they live and making them greener, then it's not just a thing that we do on the side. We embed it right into the heart of everything we do. So Donald Trump, just take an example. Donald Trump has uh, made himself a climate pariah on the world stage, but yet we're still seriously talking about trading with him. If we were serious about climate change and the Paris Agreement and all that that manifests, we'd say no trade with the US say, until Donald Trump reverses his stance on Paris. We're going to build huge amounts of homes all over the place. Let's have green housing policy. That's the sort of thing I think we need to do to go to the next level um, and stop this. Uh, and maybe that might be an answer to some of the stuff about how you get this taken more seriously in elections, is that actually we just start thinking of it, as Fernando was saying, as much more every day. But what's the role of, of markets in all this? A lot of a lot of people have said that renewables are a market-based solution and uh, and they can be left to their own devices to to come up with other other solutions. What do you guys think about that? What, what uh, there, there isn't an energy thing, technology system in the world that doesn't benefit from some sort of subsidy or tax break. So that's the first thing to say. Fossil fuels have benefited from that throughout their entire life. And if you add all that up, it comes to many, 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 many times more than any of the subsidies that re renewables have had. I mean, also, 
if you think about the, that incumbency that fossil fuels have, it's they're building on the shoulders of giants. So each time there's a new bit of technology that comes through from fossil fuels, it's building on what's already there. Renewables have had to start from scratch and you know have only really been in existence about 30, 40 years. So they need that leg up in the first place. But once they've got that, there's absolutely no reason because the critical thing is they don't require fuel to run them. So actually, once they're up and running and that infrastructure, the initial investment is made, they're cheaper and they are more diverse and they can be more resilient because they're not vulnerable to supplies of fuel, which have caused all sorts of problems in the world. I mean, markets are, they're not sort of good things or bad things. They're mm. just pretty kind of amoral. They were, people just want to make money. Right. And and money has this impressive ability to uh, flow downhill in the quickest possible way that it, that it can. And Andrew's right that there's there isn't a level playing field even now. I mean, there's no you know there are still massive amounts of fossil fuel subsidies that go on. The uh, polluters don't have to pay the costs of the climate change that they cause or the air pollution that they cause or any of those things. Um, but even given that, I mean, market we're seeing something really extraordinarily disruptive happening. In markets, look at the electric car company Tesla, which uh, wasn't around what 10, 15 years ago, is now valued higher uh, than Ford um, on the stock market. So it's now, you know, it is now seen as a better bet for the future of travel than Ford is. Um, this is all happening because you know rules are set around markets, and people see the future in a particular direction and go for it. So there's there's a lot of reasons to be cheerful about it. But you have to have government policy, yes, to make it happen. So renewables have got to where they've got to now because they've been supported by government policy. They wouldn't have got there. And the vast majority of the advances we've made in the UK in terms of cutting our carbon emissions, apart from moving from coal to gas and outsourcing most of our industrial production to the developing world, have been because of renewables targets. And those renewables targets are set in Europe. So we need to keep the pressure up, is what you're saying, even though we're making some steps in the right direction. Mm, absolutely. So thanks, Dave, Fernanda and Andrew, for giving us some reasons to be hopeful about the future of our planet. We've talked about some of the great positive ways that we can look at turning things around on the environment, but we're going to go a bit mean for a second, as we are want to do, won't to do, <laughs> on, the, on the weekly... <laughs> I'm trying. You know what I mean. Uh, on the Weekly Economics podcast, we get dark quite often is what I'm saying. So we're going for Environmental Room 101. That's what we're going to play right now. One of the issues the environmental movement has is not being taken seriously because everyone thinks you're all hippies. I'm just saying, I'm just saying what everyone's thinking. Stop looking at me like that, Dave. So a question for each of you. Which hippie environmental solution would you want to put in Room 101? so that you guys could properly get on with some of the solutions you've talked about. What's getting in the way? So, uh, Fernanda, what have you got? Okay, I hope this is not too controversial. I do very much support recycling. However, oh, but... No. <laughs> however, what does bother me is sometimes going through a whole kind of experience of learning about our impact on the environment, um, you know, and all the big problems of the world. And then final line, make sure you recycle <laughs> <laughs> as like the end go of, you know, 
solving all the issues. It's it's yeah. It's I think I think we get it. Mm. <laughs> the recycling. I think we should recycle more. Um, but I think we should be more creative about how we should how, how we engage people in actually solving environmental issues, um, mm. moving beyond recycling and doing a lot more actually recycling and doing a lot more. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like re- recycling is just you know a thing you do with the plastic you didn't necessarily need to use in the first place, right? So. And I actually don't think people still don't actually do recycling right. If no. they recycle it all, it really disappoints me. But anyway. Oh my gosh. I, I <laughs> thought I was doing it right. I thought I was doing enough. I'm so, so You're upset. doing it terribly. I've stood outside your house checking. Yeah. yeah. Some of my things are still oily when they go in. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, right. I'm really sorry. Dave, what have you got? Kittens. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm serious. People, people are very, very, very strange about... Kittens, right? And other fluffy things like rabbits, Fernanda, um, and other, <laughs> other things. Basically, people people look at fluffy animals and they go, oh, look at the fluffy animals. And they get all upset about the fluff, bad things happening to the fluffy animals. Like, you're just oh, jealous shit. you're not fluffy. <laughs> <laughs> That's below the belt. Um, but what about all the other animals? Like people, you know, there was this, this story came out a few weeks ago about water voles being reintroduced into a, a river in England and everyone was like, oh, look at the water voles, it's all very lovely, right? But if there was a story about spiders being reintroduced into a river up in the England somewhere, people wouldn't care about it. So people, we, we've got a very strange relationship and I think people are really sentimental about some sorts of animals because they look pretty and they don't care about some other animals which ecologically are far more important than silly, fluffy rabbits or mm. kittens. And I should point out, I do like rabbits and kittens, but I like spiders Kids. just as much. So more spiders, <laughs> mm. I say. And if you're not prepared to have a spider curl up on your lap before you go oh. to bed every night, mm. you don't care about the planet. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm learning a lot about myself here. But also, not everyone loves all fluffy animals. Badgers are gross. Badgers are not gross. Have you seen Have you seen a stuffed badger with the claws and the? the they're quite scary. I don't think stuffed anything is that. I don't think we yeah. have stuffed yeah, that's true. My yeah. grandma was really into taxidermy and I inherited a lot of it. And one of them was a stuffed badger and it's just really stayed with me. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> anything with the word eco or clean as a prefix. Anything. Oh, um, the, the The idea that you can stick the word clean on the front of something and it is then automatically clean, such as coal or gas, for instance. Clean coal, clean gas. It's all going to be fine. And then anything with anything with the word eco on the front of it is almost bound not to be eco. For instance, in, in one previous workplace, um, which had a you know had a certain environmental remit, um, there was some eco kettles ordered. And not only were they not any more eco than any other kettle, really, except they were supposed to theoretically only boil the amount of water you needed, they didn't work. They broke within the first... <laughs> few days or weeks of being used, which is about as uneco as you can get. So anything with eco or clean on the beginning. Except eco and the me, presumably. Oh, oh that's oh. terrible. No, that wasn't oh, supposed no. to be a joke. I was making a point oh. about the environment and the economy, <laughs> oh, that actually God. the roots of ecology yes, and economy so are the same. And somewhere along the way, Aisha, listen, <laughs> we've forgotten that. And actually, perhaps it would be better if we did remember that the root of economy is the same as the root of ecology. Okay. So as a separate <laughs> word, um, and... To give you an example, I'm past when well, I'm cycling home, passed by cars that have the word EcoFlex or something on the back of them, <laughs> and they're diesels. I mean, that is not eco, is it? 
No. Or for that flexi, as far as I can see, either. Particularly not if you bounce off it. No. I feel like you guys need some kind of support group where you just get together and, and, and do this. Because I think you could carry on, really, couldn't you? You could all carry on complaining. I mean, I know I feel worse about myself, so that's that's great. <laughs> We've achieved. Mission achieved. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, but anyway, thank you all for joining me today. I, I feel more hopeful if, if more ashamed. But that's good, right? That's what we want, a good balance of hope and shame. I enjoyed it a lot. If you've also enjoyed this episode, please do think about leaving us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast app. It only takes a minute and it really helps bump us up the charts, which helps other people discover the show. And make sure you're subscribed to the weekly Economics podcast. See? See, Dave? Learned something, yeah. Yeah, it sounded terrible. In the app of your choice to get new episodes every week, the weekly Economics podcast is produced by James Shield and Hugh Jordan and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week. See you next week.